This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone's first thought when they hear Nevada is Las Vegas, a sinful city in the middle of a fucking desert. A true testament to man's arrogance. That place is literally hotter than hell in the summer months. Those of us from Salt Lake often think of Wendover before Vegas. It's the closest place you can go to get legal weed, hookers, and casinos. I'm not joking. Prostitution is legal in Nevada. Wendover is a stone's throw away from Salt Lake. Like a two-hour drive, I think? That's where I went on my honeymoon. Got engaged in Vegas a little more than a year before that. As far as the death penalty goes, they're pretty much what you'd expect. A few more executions in Utah, but still not many in the modern era. They're one of a handful of states I've covered that actually used the gas chamber for a while. Hanging was the only method of execution before then, but there was one man executed by firing squad here in 1913 before the gas chamber came to be. Lethal injection is obviously how they do it now. There are currently 64 people on death row in Nevada, which is almost as high as the total number of people executed here to date. You're in for a treat with this one, and I'm not just saying that because you can get weed and hookers. This episode is going to have a wide variety of depravity in it. So grab some poker chips and a condom. We're heading to the Silver State. The first case I want to tell you about isn't a long one, but it is pretty fucked up and interesting nonetheless. Nevada has a couple of executions of multiple people, but the most notable one occurred in 1905. During the course of a theft taking place on a boxcar, four men threw a homeless man from a moving train. Why they chose to steal shit out of a moving train in the first place is confusing, But what really has my jaw on the floor is how cold that murder was. A transient man, probably just sleeping in the train car, thrown out while it was still moving. He obviously died as a result. Al Linderman, John Sevener, Thomas Gorman, and Fred Wright were executed by hanging on November 17, 1905. There's really not a lot of information available on this crime, but goddamn, Nevada got it right with this one. A little more than a year later, two Native American men would be hung using double gallows for the murder of another transient man. Don't kill the homeless in Nevada, I guess. They have it hard enough as it is being homeless in a fucking desert. I wanted to start this episode with a bang, but that quadruple execution caught my attention and I had to throw it in here. So I guess I'll continue this episode with a bang. Gotta have a bang in here somewhere. Early on the morning of May 14th, 1912, a Montenegrin immigrant by the name of John Gregovich was stabbed to death at the Tanopa and Goldfield train depot. John was born in what is now Petrovac, Montenegro in 1847 and had moved to the U.S. to pursue a better life. He became a senator and was a member of the Silver Party, which is exactly what it sounds like. 
John would later go on to help other Serbian immigrants with legal cases after a mine fire in Tanopa in 1911. Quick aside here, but did y'all know that Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, and Montenegro are basically all the same thing? Fucking Balkan countries? Don't tell a Serbian that though, they'll fight you. The day that John was murdered, he was at the train depot to collect a grocery bill. Out of nowhere, a man named Andrea Mirkovic yelled, I will get you, you old son of a bitch, before running up and stabbing John in the chest. Andrea is the Slavic name for Andrew, in case you were confused. John's lung was punctured and his femoral artery was severed. This wasn't just a miniature Balkan civil war, though. Mirkovic felt that John had stolen from him, as it turns out. Mirkovic's cousin, Christopher, had perished in the mine fire, and his estate was in probate. John met with Mirkovic, as well as Christopher's siblings, Vaso and Maria, on May 10th, 1911, to discuss the estate. I thankfully have not yet had to deal with anything like this, but I have been named executor of a will, so eventually, I'm gonna have a shit show on my hands. You'd think that because Christopher had siblings, his estate would just go to them, right? That makes the most sense, but for whatever reason, his cousin also had a shot at getting the money and was pissed that he wasn't able to take sole control of Christopher's estate. Before I get into the monetary figures, I want you to remember that this is 1911 money we're talking about. Christopher's total estate amounted to $2,520. In 2024 money, that's a little less than 78 grand. Not a sum to sneeze at. Maria and Vaso were paid a little more than 1700, and Mirkovic was issued a check for $50. Honestly, if I were him, I wouldn't be complaining, but he was a greedy bastard and felt that he was owed more. After legal fees and administrative costs, about 950 remained in the estate. Mirkovic felt entitled to that money and began threatening John. Rather than settle things civilly, these threats escalated into a traditional South Slavic knife fight. My kind of people right there. Giovanna, or John, Gregovich died later the same day he was attacked, despite a doctor being at the scene with him and providing immediate medical treatment. Merkovich was arrested on the spot and told the sheriff that the knife was his and that John had stolen his money. While sitting in the Nye County Jail, Merkovich told the sheriff that he wanted to make John Gregovich die. He was not made aware of his rights or the fact that his statements would be used against him in court. Witnesses testified that Merkovich had threatened John in the past and was even thrown out of his business on one occasion. The district attorney, in typical prosecutorial fashion, told the all-male jury to have the manhood to defend the law of my country and its liberty-loving people or else we might as well dynamite this old courthouse. We might as well just take his honor off the bench and say we have no law in Nye County. Andrea Mirkovich was executed by gunshot on May 14, 1913. He is the only man put to death in Nevada to choose the firing squad. This execution was a pain in everyone's ass. Because of the Mormons, Nevada passed a statute in 1910 that allowed condemned men to choose between hanging or firing squad. The prison warden was unable to find five marksmen willing to shoot Mirkovich, so a shooting machine was built. I'm not joking. Although I am picturing the breakfast machine from Family Guy that ends up shooting Peter, 
This was an actual thing. A rack of rifles was set up on a frame and connected to a coiled spring mechanism. To prevent the prison guards from knowing who actually killed Merkovich, one of the rifles was loaded with a blank cartridge. Some things never change, I suppose. Merkovich died instantly from two bullets to the heart. Though the shooting machine was donated to a scrap metal collection drive during World War II, the rifles were eventually recovered and donated to the Nevada State Museum in Carson City. As Mirkovich was getting set up to be executed, he refused a blindfold from the warden and told him, I'm much obligated to you. You be good man to me. He used his last words to curse his judge and then said, I die like a soldier. Due to the time, there is nothing available on his last meal. I've said a million times that electrocutions are the only method of execution that I deem to be unconstitutional. They are the very definition of cruel and unusual. But there's another method that I can't fully get behind. Nevada is one of just a handful of states to use the gas chamber. After this next case, they moved on to lethal injection. Jesse Bishop was a career criminal born in 1933 in Glasgow, Kentucky. He was one of four children and lived with his father in California after his parents divorced. Apparently his father was abusive, but not in the way you're probably thinking. Bishop claimed that the man beat him twice a year, regardless of whether he had done anything wrong or not. Bishop joined a street gang and committed his first armed robbery as a teenager. He wound up getting addicted to heroin. This is 1970s heroin, none of that fentanyl garbage. But I guess that doesn't really matter, as either way, addiction often leads to a life of crime. Bishop was just 46 at the time of his death and had spent the last 22 years of his life locked up for his many crimes. He'd become a heroin addict after serving as a paratrooper during the Korean War. He'd been injured in battle and given morphine by the medics. I guess he kinda earned his heroin, as he'd done so well in the military that he was awarded a Purple Heart. Went real nicely with that, uh, dishonorable discharge he got for being found in possession of heroin. In December of 1977, Bishop decided to rob the El Morocco Casino in Las Vegas. During this robbery, he shot and killed 22-year-old David Ballard, a recently married man who was trying to prevent the robbery. A shift manager at the casino was also shot in the stomach, but survived and was able to testify that Bishop shot David like a dog. All of this carnage for a measly $238. David had been married for just three hours at the time of his death. I can only imagine the pain his wife went through. But he died doing a noble deed. Bishop was cold, described by the prison director as like an ice man and tough as nails to the end. He confessed to David's murder and also claimed to have been involved in 18 contract killings. Not sure if any of that's true, but I don't doubt it. Despite being handed a death sentence, Bishop waived all his appeals and knocked on death's door willingly. Jesse Walter Bishop was executed by gas chamber on October 22, 1979. The ACLU decided to intervene, as they often do, and tried to get his sentence commuted, though Bishop himself wanted to be executed. 
The Board of Pardons voted 5-2 to two against commuting his sentence, and he was executed just two months later. As the cyanide pellets dropped into the acid, Bishop smiled and took deep breaths. His execution was pretty uneventful. He twitched a bit and moved his head around. Only nine minutes passed before he was pronounced dead. Bishop's last words to the prison director were, This is one more step down the road of life that I've been heading for all my life. His last meal was filet mignon, asparagus, a baked potato with sour cream, a tossed salad with Thousand Island dressing, and an unspecified dessert. He sent his compliments to the chef. Ah, alcohol. The demon I've battled off and on for nearly half of my short life. It truly does change some people. I go from a very quiet, reserved, and sometimes a little standoffish person to a loud, friendly drunk that doesn't shut the fuck up. A lot of things come out when a person has too much to drink. Secrets, fantasies, vomit, a lot of the time. As I've said before, I've spent many nights blacked out and woken up in strange places, but never have I killed anyone. This episode has already dealt with a handful of Eastern European immigrants. Really wasn't expecting Nevada to have a lot of them. It seems like a place for cowboys and Indians, not Ruskies and Serbs. Ilona Strumanis likely came to the US for a better life. There's not much information about her life or how long she'd been here, but in 1999, at the age of 56, she had a chance encounter with a man that makes post-Cold War Russia seem like heaven. On an early night in March, Ilona was walking down the street in Reno when she bumped into a man close to her age. This poor woman was covered in bruises, having already suffered a beating at the hands of another man. Rather than continue on her journey alone, Ilona decided to go with this strange man to the saloon he was walking toward. The two hit it off and continued drinking well into the night, eventually ending up back at the man's hotel room. They kept the vodka flowing and rarely left the room except on one occasion to go get some food. Terry Dennis was a drunk, no fucking doubt about that. He was at such a point in his addiction that he was drinking a fifth of vodka a day. I'm ashamed to say that I've been there before. It's a rough place to be. This, combined with his known mental illness, was a recipe for disaster. Dennis was homeless and unemployed. Also had a few felonies on his record for arson and assault in Washington State. Really didn't have a lot going for him. This is another case of a veteran that the U.S. government has left out in the cold. Ilona must have been very lonely to spend her time drinking with this man. She tried to engage him in conversation, but the questions she was asking became too personal, and Dennis left the room to get away from her for a few minutes. When he came back, she asked him if he'd killed anyone during his time in Vietnam. This was followed by her saying something along the lines of, I bet you couldn't kill anyone, you're too nice, which to any normal person would sound more like a compliment. But Dennis flipped his shit. While the two were having sex, Dennis put a belt around Alona's neck and began to strangle her. Her struggle aroused him, and he took this opportunity to rape her anally as she faded out. Sometime during the process of strangling Ilona, he decided to take the belt off and use his hands instead, first wrapping them around her neck and then using them to cover her nose and mouth. 
This took between five and ten minutes, and Dennis checked for a pulse when he was done. There was none. This poor Russian lady. Jesus Christ. Dennis later claimed that part of the reason for murdering Alona was that she'd made fun of him for performing poorly in bed. Vodka dick is a fucking thing, so maybe. After Ilona's murder, Dennis went about his business. He kept her body in the room and covered her up. The next four days were spent drinking, gambling, and acting like nothing had happened. On the afternoon of March 9, 1999, Dennis called the Reno Police Department and informed a dispatcher that he'd killed a woman and that her body was in his motel room. He said he wasn't planning on leaving and would be watching TV when the police arrived. Chillingly, he also told dispatchers to send a coroner as, in his words, the bitch had been dead for three or four days. Police came and arrested him without incident. When asked if there were any weapons, he informed them that he had used his hands to kill Ilona. Dennis waived his Miranda rights and agreed to be questioned. He admitted that he'd stopped taking his medication and that he knew exactly what he was doing when he killed her. The primary reason for taking this woman's life was that she'd questioned his ability to kill. Dennis thought that she needed to be put out of her misery as she was pathetic when he met her. Ilona wasn't his first victim. Apparently Dennis had recently taken another woman home with him and intended to kill her, but backed out because the woman got scared and he wasn't able to finish the job. This man was a serial killer in the making. He charmed Ilona into staying with him long enough that she got comfortable, and then he struck. Dennis told the police that he had wanted to kill someone for a long time. He didn't care about anybody, including himself. In his own words, If I didn't get stopped, this would not be the last time I would do something like this because I found it exciting. I actually enjoyed it. Often in cases of capital murder, or first-degree murder, or whatever the fuck weird nonsense name Michigan has for this crime, the accused will fight tooth and nail to get the death penalty off the table. Not Terry Dennis. He pled guilty to first-degree murder with the use of a deadly weapon, knowing that he was still facing a death sentence. He told the district court that he'd been to prison twice before and didn't consider life behind bars to be living at all. He didn't want to rot in a cell for his crimes and was happy to accept a death sentence. These kind of statements almost always cause the court to order a competency hearing, but... Again, not for Terry Dennis. The court accepted his plea, and the case moved on to the sentencing phase. The defense team argued that Dennis was intoxicated at the time of the murder and had a significant mental health history. He'd attempted suicide a handful of times since 1965 and was a known alcoholic. Ultimately, the aggravating factors outweighed those claims, and the panel of three judges sentenced him to death. Terry Jess Dennis was executed by lethal injection on August 12, 2004. His brother Gary came to visit him just hours before his execution. Gary later told a reporter that his brother said he wished he hadn't screwed his life up so bad and fallen into addiction. Gary also said that Terry never admitted any remorse for this crime and didn't feel bad about it. He had no regrets. After the execution, Gary planned to have his brother cremated and spread his ashes in a creek where they used to fish together as kids. Dennis didn't have any last words. His last meal was two cheeseburgers and a Coke. 
keeping it simple. I've talked about a lot of really fucked up things on this podcast. Child rape, domestic violence, robbing old ladies of the $10 in their purse and then shooting them in the back of the head. I'm still bitter about the Maryland episode, in case you couldn't tell. But one topic I don't think I've covered yet is cannibalism. What makes a person want to eat another person? In Soviet Russia, person eats you. Unless you're quicker than they are. Sorry, that was a real dark one. <laughs> Though there are many variables, the recipe for psychopath soup has a base of childhood trauma and mental illness. Add in some addiction, sex abuse, PTSD from war, and you can make all kinds of different messes. This next case has a little bit of everything. Born in Sioux City, Iowa in 1938, Carol Cole did not have an easy life. His father was shipped off to go fight in World War II, leaving the boy to be raised by his mother, who entertained men while he watched. To keep him from telling his father, the woman beat her son. These beatings continued long after Cole's father came home from the war. This caused the young boy to hate women. He also hated that he was made fun of for having a girl's name, so he went by his middle name, Eddie, instead. I can only imagine how much he hated his name, as he had the misfortune of being born to a woman that forced him to dress up like a girl and serve her friends tea. This isn't just some weird shit you see in horror movies. In the case of Carol Edward Cole, it was real life. Cole's first crime would be labeled an accident for many years. At the age of 10, he drowned one of his friends in a lake. This would be seen as an unfortunate tragedy until Cole confessed to the crime years later. This era really fucked a lot of people up. Cole somehow managed to make it through school, but became a drifter and worked odd jobs in between the prison sentences he earned for robbery and other thievery. Mental illness became obvious. He attempted suicide at least once and spent some time in mental hospitals. Cole was later diagnosed as a psychopath and released. Killers like Cole usually have a type. Some kill prostitutes because it's easy. Some stalk children because they're fucking disgusting. Back in the 70s, it was often hitchhikers who met their end by the hands of serial killers. Cole liked to pick women up in bars and take them home. Those he deemed to be loose, like married women, would be killed. A lot of the others were let go unharmed the next day. Those who cheated on their husbands reminded Cole of his mother, and that deep-seated rage would come out. On May 7, 1971, he picked up a woman named Essie Buck in San Diego. She was strangled to death and left in the trunk of Cole's car for a while before he finally dumped her body. Two weeks later, an unidentified woman was murdered and buried in the woods. If you think murderous psychopaths can't find love, you're wrong. Cole met and married a barmaid named Diana Pashal in 1973. She was an alcoholic, and the couple fought constantly. Cole would disappear on his own for days at a time and leave Diana on her own. He used his time wisely, committing murders and allegedly cannibalizing one of the women he killed. Diana would eventually fall victim to her husband's violent tendencies. In September of 1979, Cole strangled her to death. 
After not seeing Diana for eight days, a neighbor called the police. Her body was found wrapped in a blanket and stuffed in a closet. Case closed. Abusive husband obviously did it, right? Well, no, not exactly. Police decided that Diana had drank herself to death. Cole just hid her body. He was released without any charges. Don't think for a second that his first marriage would prevent him from finding love a second time. By 1980, Cole had moved to Las Vegas and gotten married again, but he didn't stop killing. Apparently, the love of one woman wasn't enough to kill the hate he had for all the others. In total, Cole killed 14 women before he was caught. The names of those who have been identified are Elsie Buck, Catherine Bloom, Bonnie O'Neill, Marnie Cushman, Diana Pashal, Dorothy King, Merlene Hamer, Wanda Roberts, and Sally Thompson. Many of these women were sexually assaulted after their deaths. At least one of them was cannibalized by Cole. After a night of drinking in Oklahoma City, he awoke to find her body in his bathtub and slices of her buttocks in a skillet on the stove. In total, his crime spanned across four states. Nevada was the one to finally catch him and properly handle the monster he'd become. Carol Edward Cole was executed by lethal injection on December 6, 1985. His attempts at an insanity plea were futile. If you ask almost anyone familiar with this case, they'll tell you that Cole was failed by a broken system. While I agree, I still hold the opinion that execution was the best option. People of his generation dealt with many struggles. A lot came from broken households. That isn't an excuse to murder people. There is so much more on this case that I don't have time to dive into. Look this motherfucker up if you're curious. Like most serial killers, he didn't start out murdering loose women. It was a gradual buildup. Cole's last words were, it's alright. His last meal was Boston clam chowder, jumbo shrimp, french fries, and a tossed salad with french dressing. On top of that, he had some of what was left of the cookies and candy that had been sent to him by a couple who had been writing his biography. To my surprise, Cole was given a Valium before his execution to help with his nerves. Never heard of that before. Must have been one of those coked out 80s executioners trying to make their job easier. This episode has had a lot of foreigners, hasn't it? It really wasn't my intention, but apparently Nevada is a popular place for non-Americans. I told ya, there was a variety of fucked up crimes in this one. Revenge murders are less common, maybe? Or seen to be less deserving of the death penalty? Laurie Bridges met her future husband Sebastian while working as a nurse in a California prison. Pro tip, don't marry a convict. Grand theft really isn't that bad of a crime in comparison to other things I've talked about in this podcast, but still. Laurie and Sebastian were married in 1993, but the relationship fell to pieces just a few years later. I can't find exactly why this relationship ended, but hindsight is definitely 2020 with this one, and I'm sure Laurie could see some red flags. Laurie moved from San Diego to Las Vegas in 1997 and started working as a nurse in what I'm assuming was a hospital. 
While here, she met a man named Hunter Blatchford, who was also a nurse. You know how I mentioned red flags? Well, generally, if you're happily married, you tell your spouse where you're going instead of just running off one day. Seems to me that some kind of abuse was probably going on since Laurie took off one day without saying anything. Sebastian Bridges wasn't about to let her go, though. He tracked her down and learned that she'd started another relationship. Again, stalking? Pretty big red flag. Bridges told Laurie that he'd been watching the couple and that she'd never get away. Hunter decided it would be best to meet with Bridges so that the three of them could talk things out before anything bad happened. Hunter was promised a truck in exchange for our Laurie going back to California with him. No one would take that deal, obviously. So Bridges told Laurie that he'd return all her belongings that he still had, and the three of them got in the car together. After driving out away from town to a desolate area near some empty trailers, Bridges pulled a gun. Hunter looked at him and said, you're gonna kill me now, aren't you? I trusted you. Laurie turned to Hunter and professed her love for him as her estranged husband shot him in the torso. Bridges put the body in some plastic bags before pistol whipping his terrified wife and handcuffing her. They drove out to Nipton, California. Why do I always find these weird ass towns? Where Bridges took out a brand new shovel and started digging a grave. As Laurie contemplated running off, her husband repeatedly told her, it's all your fault. She was badly injured and out in the middle of nowhere, so decided it would be better to just stay put and not piss him off even more. During this trip, he had repeatedly told Laurie that she couldn't ever tell anyone about what had happened. He also asked her if she would prefer that he shoot himself or turn himself in. Bridges began fiddling with the gun during the drive. That's in the appeal documents. I would have chose a less hilarious word. He was trying to fix something that was wrong with it and decided to pull over so that he didn't accidentally discharge it. A state trooper stopped to check on them and discovered a distraught woman with significant injuries. He called for backup and eventually Bridges led the police to the body. He'd later claim in court that the shooting was accidental, but a jury took just 25 minutes to find him guilty. My question is, if it was an accident, why did he beg for the death penalty after he was found guilty? Sebastian Stephanus Bridges was executed by lethal injection on April 21st, 2001. Honestly, kind of brought a death sentence on himself by choosing to represent himself in court. That is never a good idea. Why we have the right to do it is beyond me. In addition to representing himself, he had written to the South African government to tell them to stay out of this case. As you'll remember from the Arizona episode, foreign governments don't take kindly to the U.S. executing their citizens. When asked for his last words, Bridges said, You have no justification to kill me. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. A man with so many opportunities to get out of a death sentence, and he took none of them. His last meal was crab salad, french bread, a lobster tail, a mango, vanilla ice cream, cheesecake, and aloe juice. I've seen a lot of last meals during the course of this podcast, but aloe juice is something that's never come up before. Fucking South Africans. Shout out to the lovely Nicole from True Crime South Africa. She's part of the inspiration behind me starting this shit show.
The most recent article I can find says that there are currently 65 inmates on death row in Nevada. I skimmed through them, trying to find something other than a robbery gone wrong or someone shooting a police. I found two that made me nauseous, so I'm going to share them with you. You know, in case you're one of those people that thinks we don't need the death penalty. Sharon Allen was down on her luck in September of 1989 and found herself at the Salvation Army shelter in Las Vegas. Sharon had three kids. While at the Salvation Army, she met a man named Kittrich Powell and began spending a lot of time with him. This patchwork family stayed at a number of motels and apartments over the next two months. Sharon was employed by Deseret Industries. For those who aren't from the western half of the U.S., that's basically like Mormon goodwill. I honestly thought we only had them here in Utah. Sharon worked a normal person shift of 8.30 to 5, which is what I currently work, but the a.m. and p.m. are swapped. For whatever fucking reason, and I'm trying real hard not to judge because shitty circumstances make people do questionable things. Sharon let Powell stay home with her four-year-old daughter Malia while she was at work. I'm struggling with this because she'd only known him for a couple months. Then again, they were living together, so the red flags must not have been visible. Or she's a shitty mom. I guess we'll find out. Their neighbors noticed that Malia had a lot of bruises and other weird injuries. Having raised two four-year-olds and currently having a son who's almost three, I can tell you, little kids always have random bumps and bruises, but nothing in comparison to what little Malia had. Her chin was cut, her face was bruised, and her eye was very bloodshot. One day, a neighbor heard Malia crying and screaming, when he saw her an hour and a half later, she had a handful of new injuries to her face and legs. In front of the neighbor, Powell asked Malia what had happened to her, and she said, Daddy, you did it, to which Powell responded, No, baby, remember, you fell in the tub, remember? This conversation was repeated a couple of times, because how else are you going to convince a four-year-old to lie? This was one of many incidents of Powell being cruel to Malia and teasing her in front of other people. On November 2nd, 1989, Malia wasn't herself. She was very quiet and subdued. No four-year-old is quiet and subdued. Even the calmer of my children was never quiet and subdued at that age. Malia was complaining of head and neck pain and couldn't move her head at all. She had a new bruise on her forehead, and the side of her head was soft and spongy. How in the fuck? The little girl reported to her siblings and mother that Daddy had dropped her on her head while lifting her over his shoulder. No one took Malia to the hospital that day. I guess we have our answer. Shitty mom. I have an intuition, like you wouldn't fucking believe, and I knew something was wrong with my son the day I took him to the ER, despite there being no external signs of anything. That's a story for another day, but my point is, any mother worth their salt will know immediately when something is up with their baby and take steps to handle it. The fact that Sharon didn't drop everything and rush Malia to the hospital makes me fucking sick. The next morning, Malia was in even worse condition. She couldn't walk without assistance or hold her head up at all. Sharon, being the prized parent that she was, left Malia home with Powell and went to work. Powell eventually decided it was time to take the girl to the hospital. 
I guess the fact that she was unconscious scared him or something. An examination of Malia while she was in critical condition showed extensive bruising all over her body, a spinal fracture, a deep cut on her chin, and swelling of the brain, which had been the cause of the coma she was in. Her head injury was likely caused by blunt trauma carried out with significant force. Dr. Richard Krugman, who the state called as an expert witness, testified that he only seen one injury similar to Malia's in the last three years. A teenager had been propelled off the top of a pickup truck at 45 miles an hour and landed on the concrete. That horrific accident carried the same amount of force as whatever had struck Malia in the head. Think about that for a minute. Malia never regained consciousness and passed away on November 8th, 1989. Three physicians would testify at Powell's trial and all agreed there was no way any of her injuries could have been accidental. This sick son of a bitch repeatedly beat four-year-old Malia over the course of the months she'd been left in his care, and he tried to say it was an accident. Initially, Powell was charged with child abuse with substantial bodily harm, but after Malia died, a first-degree murder charge was tacked onto that. As you're hopefully aware by now, that murder charge carried a possible death sentence. Sharon Lee Allen passed away from natural causes on June 14, 2016. She was never charged with anything in relation to her daughter's death. I tried to have some sympathy at first because I know what it's like to be in tough situations, but not taking Malia to the hospital when she was clearly injured should have resulted in some kind of charge. Maybe not first degree murder, but something. What the fuck was this woman thinking? Oddly enough, her funeral was held at a church in Riverdale, Utah. Of course, had to have some ties to my home state. Kittrich Powell is still sitting on death row in Nevada. He's been sitting there since 1991. Normally I'd have a few things to say about the case itself for the aftermath, but my only real thoughts on this one are what the fuck is taking so long? Give me the fucking needle, I'll do it myself. Child abusers should be executed as soon as legally possible. Rest in peace, Malia. that last one left a bad taste in your mouth, don't bother getting any mouthwash yet because this next one is a whole new level of fucked up. I talked about a serial rapist already today, but this next guy... Again, what the fuck is taking so long? Robert Ibarra was born on July 20th, 1953 in Sacramento, California. His mother was just a teenager when he was born, but managed to do okay for herself. At least, that's my assumption. Why else would she go on to have four more kids? Ibarra was a normal child until about age nine when he was accidentally struck in the head with a railroad tie. Head injuries will fuck you up, I know from personal experience. My dad was an asshole all my life, but he wrecked his dirt bike when I was eight and shouldn't have lived through it. He's a different kind of asshole now can't remember things, makes shit up in his head that never happened, you know, the usual. Ibarra started to suffer from migraines and hallucinations. He was prescribed a drug called Meberol, which has sedative and anticonvulsant effects. 
To combat his hallucinations, the young man started using drugs and alcohol. If you've ever been here before, you'll know that this was a terrible idea. This head injury really fucked Ibarra up, like to the point that it was affecting his academic performance. He was regularly bullied and called a retard. His doctor, probably thinking he had some kind of ADHD or whatever, decided to prescribe him an amphetamine. What the fuck was up with doctors in the 60s? Hallucinations and amphetamines do not mix. Jesus Christ. I haven't even been to medical school. I've just seen enough tweakers in my life to tell you that. Ibarra transferred schools, but decided at the age of 15 to just drop out and opt for night school instead. He tried. I'll give him that. He joined the Marine Corps shortly after he got his diploma. They tested him and found that he was dull normal, or borderline on the intelligence scale, but still fit for duty. Like I said, he actually fucking tried. He was later discharged for homosexual conduct. Ah, pre-2010 tolerance. Gotta love it. In 1974, Ibarra moved to Oregon and got married. The couple moved back to Sacramento and had their first child. In 1979, his wife left him and went back to Oregon. Ibarra spent some time in Montana before moving to Ely, Nevada in September of 1979. This is where he'd fuck his life up beyond all repair. On September 29, 1979, two fishermen found a woman's purse and signs of a struggle on an unpaved road outside of Ely. Nearby, they found 16-year-old Nancy Griffith lying on the side of the road. She was badly burned, no hair on her head, eyes were swollen shut, and she had a deep gash in her shoulder. But she was alive. The strength of this girl, holy shit! The men covered Nancy with their shirts and immediately went to get help. The deputy they returned with actually knew Nancy, but couldn't recognize her due to her injuries. She was able to speak long enough to tell the deputy that a man in a red truck had raped her. Nancy was rushed to a hospital in Salt Lake City, but succumbed to her injuries the next day. Why? That's a three and a half hour drive. Does Nevada not have hospitals? What the fuck? The night before she was attacked, Nancy and a friend had met Robert Ibarra somewhere in Ely. He was working on an oil rig nearby where Nancy would later be found. For whatever reason, the girls willingly rode around with Ibarra for a while. Nancy's friend was dropped off at her sister's house, but made plans to meet back up with her friend later that night. Nancy never came back. Investigators would later find a quarter-mile-long trail of charred human skin and burnt clothing. They also found a burn area and a gas can with Ibarra's fingerprints on it. If this wasn't damning enough, Nancy's fingerprints were found on a beer can at Ibarra's house. Nancy's cause of death was severe burns that seared her respiratory passages and charred 80% of her body. She was doused in gasoline and set on fire while she was either standing or sitting, still alive. Before her death, she'd suffered a brutal rape and a blow to the head. Robert Ibarra Jr. is still sitting on death row in Nevada. He initially pled not guilty, but later changed that plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Being a cruel, heartless monster is not the same thing as being criminally insane. This motherfucker 
did whatever he could to appeal. Tried to get a change of venue, which was denied. His own lawyers acknowledged that he had murdered Nancy, but argued the legitimacy of the other three felonies he was looking at. His jury found him guilty of first-degree kidnapping, battery with intent to commit sexual assault, sexual assault, and first-degree murder. His most recent appeal was submitted on March 22nd, 2023. From what I gather, it was denied, as it should be. Fuck this guy, he deserves the electric chair. That's it for the Wade and Hooker's state. Those last two cases made me physically ill, and I need to calm down. I'm sure there are plenty of recent cases that could end in death sentences in Nevada. In fact, I'm pretty sure I talked about one in a recent Rumble livestream. Get on over there on Friday nights if you want recent crime news. If you enjoyed this episode, spell it out in poker chips on a table somewhere. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'm on Rumble, Odyssey, and most podcast apps. Shit is popping off, finally. I'll be back next week with an episode about yet another East Coast colony. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.